Hello and welcome to the Commotion Mobility Podcast, your regular glimpse into the future of urban mobility. Welcome to our second coronavirus crisis edition. Uh, I'm your host, Greg Lindsay, uh, Director of Strategy for Commotion, and I'm joined this week uh, by Jonah Bliss, who is the Director of Marketing and Media, here to basically kick things off at the top of the podcast with our, again, new and revised format of filling you in on everything that's happening as, uh, as the world goes into self-quarantine. Um, and then you'll be joined later in the podcast by Paul Comfort, uh, Vice President of Business Development for Trapeze Group, to talk particularly about the effects uh, that this crisis is having on public transit and some of the relief that is being brought by the $2 trillion stimulus bill that was passed uh, just a few days ago uh, by the U.S. Congress and will shortly be signed by the President of the United States. Jonah, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And uh, another uh, insanely hectic week with uh, a lot of news to catch up on. I'd say, where should we even begin? I guess the, the, the data point I want to start with, which, which I think is fascinating, is the information reported um, that Lime, uh, you know, one of the flagship micromobility companies, is seeking an emergency round of funding that would slash its valuation by as much as 80%. And it raises the question, Jonah, uh, is this, you know, I mean, we've talked about the, the seasonal effects of winter uh, on, the, on the scooter companies, but this uh, is shaping up to be a sort of nuclear winter, it would appear, for these very uh, cash-hungry startups that scaled quickly and now through sort of no fault of their own are facing an existential risk. So um, yeah, is this going to be, you know, like basically you know, the first wave of dinosaurs uh, being wiped out by a, by a meteor and, and we'll see micromobility continue to evolve or how do you like the chances of the, of the companies that are out there? Uh, well, you stole some of the, the best metaphors already, but it's definitely looking like a, a nuclear winter. Um, I, I think one thing that really is fascinating about the form factor though is the evolution happens at such a you know, breakneck pace that, you know, even if some of the current uh, incumbents falter, it just seems like, you know, assuming the world returns to some sense of normalcy one day, we will see another crop and a whole new paint job uh, take their place. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, optimistic that Lime's going to make it through. Um, it's obviously tough times all around. We've seen Lime pull their fleet. We've seen Bird pull their fleet, jump wheels. Um, but yeah, if, if you can't be on the streets, if you can't go to work, obviously you're not going to be taking a scooter there. So it's uh, tough times. Well, Uber did find it a perfect timing to file a federal lawsuit against LADOT, continuing uh, to escalate its ongoing legal battles. Um, I'm, I'm curious just sort of how you, if, what your thoughts are and if we'll ever see that resolved. I mean, it feels like this is going to go to the Supreme Court, literally, uh, because Uber, in its latest escalation against the city of Los Angeles, invoked the Fourth Amendment, uh, effectively sort of search and seizure um, as a way to basically, uh, you know, not comply with its demands for data. So, um, you know, any particular thoughts? on where where and when this is going to end uh, <laughs> i mean it seems like with uber things always just continue to get ratcheted up higher and higher and higher right um no i was actually looking a little bit at uh the, the twitter account of their sort of uh astroturf group i think it's called cars right indeed um, yes and and yeah just even there like the the tenor they're taking is is you know it's almost personal the, the way they're going after some of the uh the city and dot leadership about um data and privacy. So it really feels like they're digging their heels in for a fight here. Um, and I know on, you know, kind of the other side of things, I think it was DC also recently announced that they are kind of increasing the, uh, the data requirements they're asking mobility providers. 
so yeah, it's it's hard to kind of see this dying down. And, and once you kind of have these battles going on in multiple jurisdictions, um, seems like it's going to go all the way to the top. Indeed, indeed. Well, I would say Uber is one of the biggest winners, speaking of them, in the $2 trillion stimulus bill that was passed by Congress. Um, in addition to the $25 billion for public transit, which we're going to hear a bit more about in the second half of the podcast with Paul Comfort, um, Uber also successfully managed to convince the government that 1099 independent contractors should have their unemployment insurance covered by the U.S. taxpayer. So we have this fascinating, you know, again, Uber once again is able to go to Wall Street and say, we have $10 billion in our war chest. We're going to weather this just fine, while also successfully pleading poverty to the U.S. government that the taxpayer should cover its non-employees unemployment insurance a, a masterful lobbying move i have to say but um yeah I, I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on this as well and sort of how they managed to pull that rabbit out of a hat <laughs> um it's yeah they're they're incredibly generous with other people's money i think we see that time and time again um and yeah whoever's whoever does their lobbying you know get me that phone number um but i i think you know, on one hand i'm you know pleased to hear that we are going to be protecting these, you know, gig workers who live sort of, you know, at the margins of society in many cases, just, you know, living out of their cars, trying to make ends meet. So I'm, I'm happy that the payments cover them. But yeah, it just speaks to the sort of absurdity of some of the business model. Um, and I think, you know, with things like AB5, we're, we're seeing the states start to push back against that. I'm really curious, you know, once the whole economic fallout of this crisis starts to subside are we going to see you know more permanent changes to how we classify different types of workers in this country are we going to see uh you know increased protections that actually outlast this or is this just really going to be a one-time blip and then back to business as normal i don't know what do you think greg I don't know. I, this is the sort of thing. And, and just to tease for next week, next week on the podcast, we're going to have Harry Campbell, aka the rideshare guy, who's going to talk particularly about um, the, how this is being felt by the drivers and, and their increasingly sour relations with uh, you know, their, their non-employers about you know, instructions or lack thereof on really how to deal with you know, ride hailing in the age of, an, of a pandemic in terms of supplies for disinfectants and whatnot. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I think it's really interesting about, you know, uh, this was already shaping up to be the year of regulation and reckoning when it comes to, uh, you know, the, the, the gig work ride-hailing companies. And we've already seen, you know, Norway, Japan, uh, most recently Canada here, I'm in Montreal, um, you know, the Ontario Labor Relations Board, you know, ruled that Fudera uh, delivery uh, in contractors were in fact dependent contractors, which meant they can unionize. So it'll be interesting to see whether we're going to, you know, see a, a rush to, you know, create more formal structures for this, you know, previously liquid, precarious uh, group of workers who have been deemed essential, by the way, which is, of course, the great paradox during the pandemic. They are both incredibly tenuous and yet they're essential simultaneously. Um, I, Karl Marx would have so much to say about that, I'm sure. Um, yeah, I hope any listeners are certainly, you know, tipping their uh, food delivery people well, but it's, it goes more than, it's going to take more than individual actions if they've proven how vital they are in a crisis like this. Let's, let's treat them like the vital service they are and make sure they are uh, 
paid and protected. No, exactly. Well, well, shifting gears, so to speak, there. I mean, at, at the other end of the spectrum, you know, we've seen you know this huge crash, uh, the, you know, this giant pause in everything in daily life, including auto sales. And it's really interesting that you know that at the as of the time of this taping, and you can sort of see the sort of geographic uh, you know disparities about how the virus has swept the world. That you know, U.S. automakers are touting how they're building ventilators and building face masks, while Chinese automakers are revving up their plants again. And you know, it'll be really interesting to sort of see whether this will be an inflection point for or a tipping point um, so to speak for global automakers about whether this is finally the shift to China if they now have a head start on restarting production sales R&D while US companies are now being patriotic and you know retooling so to speak at least temporarily for the war on COVID-19. Yeah it definitely reminds me a little bit of uh, World War II not not to you know get too stretching of the analogy there but the U.S. Uh, entered the war effort a little late, but then we sort of turned all our industrial might towards it almost single-mindedly. So, you know, seeing Ford and GM start making ventilators, it's encouraging. Um, you know, hopefully they don't have to do this forever. Uh, that would be a frightening future, obviously. Um, and then, of course, we've seen old Elon Musk uh, chime in in his usual self, making promises on Twitter. We'll see uh, what actually comes of those. But uh, as usual, of course, a way to get the uh, media spotlight on himself, whether or not he's actually uh, ponying up. But yeah, I think the, the long-term ramifications, that's, that's the great unknown right now. You know, what, is, what does this look like in another few months? Are, are the U.S. automakers going to follow the Chinese ones and be able to give it back to normal? Or are we in for a long slog and a kind of changed paradigm when this is all over? Well, it'll, yeah, it'll be interesting. I would say, and, and history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes, to quote Mark Twain. Uh, it's interesting that um, Willow Run, the massive GM factory complex that produced B-29 bombers uh, daily during World War II, is, of course, now the autonomous uh, vehicle testbed of, of Greater Detroit. So it'll be interesting to sort of see what, uh, you know, what comes out of this uh, effort as well, and sort of watching Detroit go through these waves. Um, one last thing before we go over to, uh, to Paul and, uh, and switching over to sort of transit. The other interesting thing that's come out of this so far has been um, the efforts of leaders like Mayor Bill de Blasio in New York and elsewhere, this push, you know, speaking of cars, that, you know, we give up so much of the public realm uh, to streets that are basically designated for cars. And during this time of social distancing and this, you know, intense desire for people to go outside and not go stir crazy, uh, it's fascinating watching cities wake up to the fact that their park space for people is so uh, incommensurate to the need. So it's it's interesting to watch, you know, the in New York, for example, that you know, designating streets be uh, have the cars removed from them. It'll be curious to see if this is also again a tipping point for completely rethinking our relationship with how we allocate space in the public realm. Um, do you think that'll be permanent? I think this is another thing where, much like the pandemic preparations, the U.S. has been unfortunately behind the curve. We, you know, we've seen cities like uh, Bogota and uh, CDMX really push to open up just you know miles and miles and miles of streets to repurpose them for bike lanes, for bus lanes, and using this crisis as a chance to really speed up plans that they've already been working on diligently. Whereas you know your, your New York example, I think De Blasio said it was going to be two streets in each borough, and, and it was only going to be for a few days. I mean, maybe that'll get stretched out. You know, I'm hopeful it will, or, or hopefully you know, some of his ongoing battle with Cuomo, they'll just keep one-upping each other with who can open up more streets to pedestrians. But yeah, the U.S. has been pretty timid in its response so far. So while I'm hopeful that as this stretches out, some good silver linings come and we can kind of think about all the space that we've dedicated to cars that's now just sitting idle and could be helping people. 
uh, we really need to see our leaders take a stand on this and, and make a, a call that's going to help some people. And speaking of Cuomo, be sure to listen to the very end of my interview with Paul Comfort because he has some very interesting things to say about just how far Cuomo can carry this crisis. Hello, and welcome to the Commotion Mobility Podcast, your regular glimpse into the future of urban mobility. I'm your host, Greg Lindsay, Director of Strategy for Commotion, and welcome to another self-quarantine edition of the podcast. This week, I'm joined by Paul Comfort, Vice President of Business Development at Trapeze, uh, and also the former CEO of the Baltimore MTA, a public transport official. Um, he's just published a book, The Future of Public Transportation, and that future is already looking very different. Thanks so much for joining us, Paul. Hey, thanks for having me. So, Paul, I mean, you are out there on the front lines talking to public transportation officials all around the country right now. Obviously, there are huge fears uh, given the massive fall off in ridership necessary given self-quarantine. Um, but given their funding models between the fare box and tax revenues, which are also set to fall as America enters a recession, if not the depression, um, what is the mood out there? Uh, is it, I mean, pure panic? Is it despair? Is there some sort of cockeyed optimism? Uh, what are you hearing <laughs> out on the ground? Uh, well, thanks, Greg. Thanks for having me here. And yeah, so as part of what I do, kind of like the C-suite ambassador for Trapeze, I'm in regular contact with the senior executives of a lot of the major transit systems in North America uh, and around the world. And I've been I've probably talked to 20 of them in the last week. Uh, and basically, uh, there's not a lot of um, panic. I think there was panic at first. Uh, but that quickly resolved as people started going into the plans that were required to service the public. As you mentioned, ridership has declined across the board and most transit systems, probably around 50 to 60 percent. And then on commuter bus and commuter train services, anywhere between 70 and 90 percent. Uh, most systems have made adjustments to their service based on that. They've gone first to Saturday-only schedules or some uh, corollary to that. And now this week, more of them are taking even more drastic measures and cutting back service even more. Some cities are uh, have shut down uh, almost all of their service except for paratransit. Others are dramatically reducing service. Um, some of them, like Baltimore MTA yesterday, uh, just had a driver uh, test positive. And so they have had to, had to shut down their Eastern garage there, uh, which affected a lot of the routes, et cetera. And so there's a lot of implications of this. There's a lot of hope on the horizon though, with the Senate passing, uh, the funding bill last night, which included, you know, $25 billion, more than the initial request from APTA, which was uh, 16 billion. They added 4 billion in for rural areas initially in the Senate bill. And then with some further negotiations with the Democrats, that was increased to $25 billion. And so it's a great big cash infusion, and it's got to be released by the Federal Transit Administration within seven days of it passing. Uh, when it, you know, hopefully we'll go to a vote in the House and then to the President, and then it'll be released within seven days out to all the transit systems using the normal formula funding mechanism from the Federal Transit Administration. So as you mentioned, there's been a big hit in uh, fare box revenue, and I want to talk about that a little bit further and what the long-term implications of that might be, uh, but. Um, you know, most services, the fare box recovery ratio is around 20% for bus service, which is the largest yeah. service in most systems. For commuter trains and commuter buses, it's a lot more, 50 to 60%. But so they've lost, let's say, 15 to 20% of their, of their uh, revenue. This money from the federal government and some states like Virginia that have released uh, the next quarter of funding early for people so they could download that money to the local transit systems early are helping to kind of keep the cash flow going. 
So there isn't uh, cockeyed optimism, but there's a real good plan in place. Like I talked to Dennis Selinsky, the CEO of Connecticut Transit, John Sisson, the head of Delaware, these statewide agencies, as well as a bunch of other CEOs just in the last couple of days. And they are not like panicking or in fear. They've got a good plan in place. They've reduced service. The, the, the public officials that are funding their service are committed to public transit, committed to keeping it going. They're not laying any drivers off yet because they know how hard it'll be to get them back if they let them go. They're keeping them on board. This federal bailout from Washington will help them last a little longer. So I think people are um, cautiously optimistic that we'll be able to get through this in a few months. And when it comes back, it'll come roaring back. And they want to be kind of all cleaned up and ready to go by then. Yeah, you mentioned, I mean, talking about a couple of months, I mean, obviously the president has talked about, you know, having America back in business by Easter, but obviously, uh, you know, the governors and other officials at the local levels have pretty broad discretion in terms of what they want to do with self-quarantining. So, you know, when it comes to transit officials, I mean, you know, the New York MTA obviously comes to mind. They, they were asking specifically for a bailout and others. Um, you know, what what are the steps that we're going to see next? I mean, are they going to further curtail service? Is there anyone who's planning to ultimately, I mean, given that they're essential public services, but given perhaps mounting, you know, number of cases, um, you know, will there be a, you know, a complete shutdown in some cities? And, you know, where is that money going to go from the bailout? Is that mostly for debt service and just paying salaries and keeping life support? Um, or, you know, how, how are they going to keep that fresh powder stockpiled? Yeah. So as I mentioned, some services actually are have closed service, uh, one closed and reopened. Not a lot of them have done that, though. Uh, and so some of the rules on the federal funds, uh, the funds are to prevent, prepare for, and respond to COVID-19. And so the operating expenses that can be covered with the funds that are coming from Washington as it stands now in the Senate package are operating costs to maintain service, money to uh, cover lost revenue due to the coronavirus. They can also purchase personal protective equipment and pay for administrative leave of operational personnel. Uh, some of the folks that, and the federal share is 100%. Um, and so, you know, some of the folks are taking this opportunity to do a lot of things. I talked with one CEO yesterday who told me that there's been a, a lot of training that they have been wanting to do with their uh, operators, uh, various you know, training classes and updates mm -hmm. on things, but they haven't been able to take them off the road because, as you know, most transit services are short on drivers. And so they've been actually paying overtime, 10, 20 percent overtime at a lot of systems. So a lot of that overtime is gone now. They're back to regular service. Some drivers have asked to use their PTO to stay at home with their kids or their family. Uh, and so that's helped reduce the need for some drivers because the service has been reduced. And then they're taking uh, a lot of this time to do classes, to clean their facilities and for the maintenance shops to go ahead and catch up on all the deferred maintenance on the buses. So this pause in service, uh, the flip side of it is that it is, um, it's giving people an opportunity to catch up on things that in the fast pace, the hurried pace up until now, they haven't been able to do it. One of the long lasting changes I think that may happen is um, the whole situation about going fair free. Do you want to talk about that for a I was, second? Yeah, I was going to ask about this when I referred to cockeyed optimism. And this is the <laughs> thing I've sort of seen is like, you know, there's been this discussion, obviously Estonia globally is most famous for it. There's been a number of European cities, Kansas City voted to go for it and no one's really got the data on this yet. But there seems to be this, you know, this straight out there being like, well, if we're going to have to have, you know, if, if we're this dependent on the taxes and we're going to get this huge federal bailout, why don't we just recognize that transit is an essential urban utility and let's just go free and like, let's recognize the benefits of that. And I'm curious how much traction you see that idea getting. 
Yeah. So I think the first step of that, uh, based on what I'm uh, hearing and kind of sensing underground, is that we might go like TFL, uh, Transport for London, and there may be a move to go cash free. You know, there's been Title VI implications there uh, where the federal government requires people to make sure they provide service for the unbanked and lower income. But with um, cards that load value, either at TVMs, ticket vending machines, or at your local 7-Eleven store, that's not become that much of an issue anymore. People without banking can still throw a few dollars on a card and ride the service. And so as services have begun to close the front door of the bus and require rear, rear bore entry to the buses so that they don't have interaction with the drivers, a lot of them have gone um, first cash-free, and then non-enforced fares. And now some of them, like you said, like Kansas City did last week and several others have done, have announced, you know, not only are we not going to enforce fares, we're just going to go ahead and say it's free for now. Now, so here's what I see happening potentially. I think some of them will realize, you know what, um, we don't need cash anymore. We can go cash free, but still have fare, uh, fares done through you know, e-ticketing, through uh, all the various mechanisms. Now people even have wearables, jewelry that they can have stored value on, and the regular cards. Uh, that cash free event will then allow people to do um, no fare box, which I see mm-hmm. coming pretty quickly. Uh, uh, this this whole episode has sped this up, I think, the evolution. I know Matt Cole and I were talking, the former CEO of Cubic, about six months ago, nine months ago, and he said, Paul, I think the next order of fare boxes that a lot of transit agencies do may be their last. Well, I'm taking that one step further now and saying I don't know that there may be another fare box order for a lot of places. I think that they're seeing now that all they might need is validators, uh, people, little machines that read the cards that come in. So I think we could be moving to an era where the iconic symbol of the fare box on the bus may be making way for the new ways of paying fares. And that will, of course, allow for all board boarding, uh, all door boarding of buses, which has been um, a big hit for BRT that allows people to get on the vehicles or light rail vehicles where it's based on the honor system, allows boarding of buses once we get back to full capacity a lot quicker, which improves the speed of the service, which, of course, then will add to uh, – to uh, more riders. And so yeah. I think one of the solutions that will come out of this is that. And then you may see systems like Kansas City and others say, you know what, like you said, we're just not going to go back to having fares. At this point, we've already figured out how to do it. And of course, that has to be covered, right? The 20% subsidy that comes from fares has to be covered from somewhere in the budget. So some cities are looking to basically just subsidize it with the general fund. Others have funding formulas where they have a millage or a sales tax percentage that they may be able to increase either through a referendum or through an act of the city council. So yes, I believe that this uh, event in our history will move us more toward cash-free and definitely more toward several cities uh, and maybe more than that, going completely fare-free. And like you said, saying, hey, this is just like roads, this is just like schools, it's just like libraries. This is an essential service, and we don't charge other people an extra fee to use that. We don't make it like, um, you know, in local government when I was a county administrator, we had like a local golf course, right? It was partly subsidized by the taxpayers, but there's a user fee added to it because not everyone uses the service. And that's been the general view of public transit. Yeah, we'll subsidize it maybe at 70 75%, but we still need there to be a user fee. This uh, event has created an awareness in the minds of public officials Public transit's not a nicety. Uh, It's not like a cruise, which is a luxury. It's not like flying in an airplane, which is a nicety. It's an essential service, and we need to have it available for everyone. And yet cruises and aviation getting much larger bailouts. That's my point, yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, I want to ask, you know, so the flip side of that, you, you know, you mentioned people are expecting it to come roaring back. I'm curious if you're talking to anyone who's worried that this is, separate from the funding issues, that this is going to be a once-in-a-generation massive hit to the perception of public transport uh, in cities, or even, even ride-hailing in general, in the sense of, you know, looking, looking at the case of New York, where lots of affluent New Yorkers are fleeing to second homes. They're t- they're taking their cars and they're getting out. And I remember, I think it was Alex Roy or someone someone else pointed out that like you know, in a case of emergency, you don't want to call an Uber. Like oh, yeah. there is that sort of like reptilian brain. Like you want to own a vehicle that you control so you can get out. Yes. And um and, I, and it makes me worry that people are going to go back to that the notion of like you know this. And you see this argument already swelling up that urban density is bad. That we need to think about the suburbs again and car ownership again. You know, is anyone worried about a, a permanent fall off in ridership, or is that you know, is, are we hoping that things will rebound pretty quickly there? Nobody has said that, but as I uh, analyze it myself, I think that where we may see a hit first off is commuter services. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of folks have realized that hey, I actually can work from home. You know, uh, most days of the week, maybe come into the office one or two days a week. And so the folks that use our commuter train services, like Mark here in here in Baltimore, or VRE Virginia Railway Express, or the Long Island Railroad, or or you know, Metrolink in Toronto, they may start seeing uh, the opportunity to work from home more often, and that could hurt commuter services. I don't see a long-term impact personally on public transit generally, like the regular bus, light rail, and subway services in cities. The majority of users of those are people that um, may not have the opportunity. I'm, they're not the choice riders. We've already seen a decline in ridership across the country over the last five years as choice riders opted out and moved toward Uber and Lyft and other you know, um, shared mobility, such as zip cars or whatever. So I think we've already taken that hit. We may see another 5 or 6% uh, general long-term reduction. But most cities that have now figured out what I call the silver bullet, and maybe this is a way to transition to my book, uh, The Future of Public Transportation, discuss that. Most cities now are, are starting to figure out there's three things that they can do to improve ridership. And I think all three of them will still be valid when we're through this coronavirus scare, whether it's three weeks from now or six months from now. And that'll be you know, the, the changing of the bus networks to meet the current ridership demands and not just all going to the central business district anymore, but taking people mm-hmm. to jobs in the suburbs. It's then adding frequency to the heaviest used routes so that people don't need a schedule. And then third, it's reducing friction. And this is something that I think will, like I mentioned earlier, uh, basically helping the bus move faster. One of the big complaints people have is the productivity of a fixed route bus where they feel like, you know, I could almost jog faster uh, through the downtown area than I can to ride your bus because you're stopping at every traffic light. You're caught in the traffic. It takes forever for people to board the bus in front of me because they're buying one day passes that take 30 seconds and I can be standing three or four people back. I don't know where the bus is. You know, all that is changing. Now cities are adding bus only lanes. Like in Baltimore, we had funding for five miles of bus only lanes. Uh, we're adding transit signal priority where intersections are changed so the lights will allow buses to have uh, priority to get through and for the lights to stay green longer for them. So it's helping the bus move faster. And then all the new fairing mechanisms that are coming in place to move away from cash and move toward these e-fairing mechanisms, anything that you can do off-board fairing, getting on the board quicker, and then all the new apps on your smartphone that can show you exactly where the bus is at any given time. All of that is helping to make people feel like transit is more relevant to them. And then you add in mobility as a service where they can have options for all public mobility on one app. I don't see a long-term hit to regular general public transit is my uh, cautiously optimistic statement. 
I do love, so let, yeah, let's talk about your book for a second because yeah, again, you know, coming out with a book titled The Future of Public Transportation on March 1st, right? As this, this, this <laughs> wave is washing over us. It's very prescient, I, wasn't it? <laughs> it, it? It was. I would say I look forward to the pandemics chapter yes, in there. That exactly. would be prescient. But, um, but I want to touch about, I love the fact that, you know, that, yeah, you wrote a book about this and, you know, and the humble bus is your, is your area of focus versus like, you know, micromobility or ride hailing and everything else. So I'm curious, yeah, what, where do you see going forward the sort of, you know, because you're big on PPPs, public-private partnerships, and obviously those companies are, you know, trying to get closer to government now because of, you know, the steadiness of federal subsidies, particularly now that we have a bailout package going through. Um, so I'm curious, you know, how do you see that, that that relationship continuing to evolve? I mean, Uber just filed another federal lawsuit against LA. Yeah, you can see the tensions. So, um, so yeah, well, you know, yeah. do you have any best practices at this point on terms of like, you know, how the farmer and the cowman can be friends, to quote from Oklahoma there, there you go. Uh, on, on how to <laughs> make these play nice together? You're so esoteric. That's awesome. Um, so let's talk for just one minute about the book itself. So the book is called The Future Public Transportation. It's available on Amazon as an ebook download or a paperback. I gave it away for the first few weeks, which probably helped it. You know, I was giving it for 99 cents. And so that helped it zoom to number one on the charts. It was the number one bestseller for all transportation books on Amazon for a couple weeks. So that was exciting. Uh, and the book is broken into four sections, and it includes chapters just like my first book, Full Throttle. I, I decided to include other people. I had a book agent tell me, you know, Paul, that's a terrible thing. You need to write it yourself. But I like including other people in these big uh, compendium books. So this is a 425-page tome that includes 40 chapters written by other people other than me. Uh, and these are... Um, you know, 10 public transit CEOs from cities like Las Vegas, Toronto, Chicago, uh, sorry, Charlotte, Nashville, San Antonio, you know, and, and even overseas, Glasgow and Oahu. And they're talking about what's happening in their transit systems. We have 10 chapters on practical improvements, like what's going to happen the next five to 10 years when it comes like bus maintenance. So, you know, we talk about how artificial intelligence is helping transit agencies better determine when is the right time to bring the bus in for uh, maintenance, etc. And we, we go through very proud. That's actually the first section of the book. Then the next section is CEO speaking, like I mentioned. Then third, I asked the industry associations to speak. And so we've got APTA, CTAA, CUDA, and the Eno Center for Transportation, all with their CEOs, Rob Puentes, Paul Scatellis, all those guys, Marco D'Angelo and Scott Bogren, all of them talking about their particular sphere. And they're very well-written chapters that give a good handle on what's coming in the next two to five years. And none of that's really going to change, I don't think. Even with the, the things they're talking about are things that are kind of baked in. And then finally, yeah. the cool part of the book that I really enjoyed uh, working with, in addition to the first three, are the top transit trends. So I invited 20 top transit futurists and CEOs to give us an inside look at all the latest trends from things like you talked about, autonomous vehicles, Hyperloop, high-speed trains, zero-emission buses, mobility as a service, um, all, all those things, e-bikes and scooters. And so we've asked like professors from Monash University, you know, Dr. Graham Curry over in Australia to talk about that, you know, all the way to uh, really smart guys here in, in North America, like Alex Nee, the CTO of my company, Trapeze, or David Pickerel. And so all of them have contributed uh, to what they think is coming in the next two to five years and beyond in this new 2020 uh, decade. So uh, the basic theme of the book is we can make improvements on existing public transportation where it's at. The new trends that are coming will help our buses run better, help our trains run better, help us become more um, accessible and available and uh, you know actually attractive to the general public to ride. But there's also a theme in the book that says that the new transit trends and the technologies are largely being driven by the private sector, like you mentioned. And so these are companies like Proterra who are you know, helping to drive innovation when it comes to electric buses and the extended battery lives 
that will allow transit systems to, you know, not just put them on select routes, but now allow them to put them on their longest routes because the battery life has changed. And so a lot of the innovations that are coming are coming from private companies who are developing new technology and then public transit systems are adopting them. And as you mentioned, these private sector companies, you know, are definitely um, getting closer to their to the uh, mother's milk of the federal money that's going to flow through their transit agencies. Uh, but they are still uh, functioning, and even in this time of uh, of you know turmoil and crisis, a lot of them are still flourishing. Some of them are hurting right now. I've talked to a number of, uh, of big companies whose representatives tell me that they're hurting because you know ridership is down and they may get paid by the revenue hour, like some of our service provider partner friends. And others, but uh, but when we come out of this, those that are that are left standing, which hopefully all of them or most of them will be there, uh, are going to continue to help us on this march toward the future of public transportation. Interesting. Well, you know, you mentioned t- tying that back to something you said earlier with the notion of like, yeah, that over, you know, really over this, the economic boom that just ended this ten, the ten year you know, the jobless recovery here, post-financial crisis. Um, Yeah, we saw, you know, unprecedented drops. You know, there was a real decline from the peak, national peak in the United States about, I think, 2014 in public transit ridership. And then there's just been this decline. And, you know, yeah, now we're in a situation where, again, we're like, we're looking at public transportation as, yeah, some people are going to see it as a rump service or as a safety net. And and I'm curious, like, how do we, you know, in addition to the performance improvements, do they have any real ideas on, like, again, how we go on and change that perception or whether this is an opportunity to, again, prove to people that this is, like, the foundation of cities and urban life, that it's public transport, binding it together, bringing those essential workers to keep city life going? Um, you know, how do we win hearts and minds? Because we've been losing that for the last five, six years now. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, Boy, the, the second part of that is the nice commercial for the public transit agency, what you just said, because it really is becoming seen as an essential services. And I talk to CEOs and executives around the country and even some political leaders. Uh, as you know, I've been in politics, too, and I'm talking to them and seeing what they're thinking about things. Here's the thing. Public transit is uh, is in most places uh, in the major cities. It's mass transit. These cities are run, I'm just going to be frank, by, I don't want to call out a political party, but they're run by people who have an appreciation for um, for serving the public well. And those cities are not going to let their public transit systems wither on the vine. Even now, in this time of crisis, like I mentioned, states like Virginia have done all kinds of creative things, like release their funding ahead of time to keep cash flow going. So I don't see a reduction in the political support for mm-hmm. public transit in cities. In mm-hmm. suburban areas, there's not been a lot of support for public transit anyway. I'm going to be frank with you. Uh, it, where I live, outside of Annapolis, Maryland, and uh, in, a, in, a, in a, one of these counties where 60% of the people leave the county every day, the majority of them do ride their own cars. Now, when I was CEO of the MTA, I added some extra commuter bus service to the Eastern Shore and to Annapolis to get people to Baltimore. Those routes had been cut by the previous administration. And people are still riding the commuter trains. And the commuter buses are full. I mean, uh, you know, here there's 350 buses. Not right now, but prior to this, they're full. And so, But um, I don't see a, a grand reduction in political support, which is really what matters, right? We're not yeah. talking about taking polls of people who live in rural areas. To be honest with you, a poll there wouldn't really be relevant to what's happening in public transit. 
most rural areas have a Department of Aging or Social Services run a small system, or they may have the county government run a small system of 15 or 20 buses, which primarily is helping the elderly and people with disabilities who are going to need this service no matter what. That's not going to change. The local county commissioners aren't going to pull the subsidy for that because those people vote. Let's just get real. Um, the, you know, as you take polls of who's voting, it's not the young people. It still is elderly are voting in highest numbers, 70, 80 percent. So the county commissioners, you know, of uh, Timbuktu, Kansas, uh, or Arkansas, as they say, are not going to cut funding for Meals on Wheels. They're not going to cut funding for the senior centers after this is over. Uh, they're going to need their services back. They're not going to cut services uh, funding for their rural public transportation funds. As a matter of fact, the Senate version of the bill, as like I said, include four billion, uh, over $4 billion now, I think, for rural areas. And in the cities, I'm telling you, Greg, I don't see it happening. I don't see, you know, uh, Mayor Garcetti or, you know, any mayor of any city saying, I'm going to reduce my subsidies uh, to public transit when this is done. If anything, they're going to see that, you know, my voting block, the people who vote for me, the unions and who drive the buses and are the mechanics and the, uh, you know, the people who are going to work every day in blue collar jobs and some white collar jobs, they rely on transit now more than ever. And so I don't see the political support falling away. I think public transit comes back better and stronger than ever. Of course, I am a little bit of an optimist. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, one last question, because I would say it's, it's indicative of how much life in the time of Corona has overshadowed everything that, or, you know, in a normal time, I think we would have spent this whole time talking about politics uh, yes. <laughs> and, and the upcoming elections. So without asking you to make any predictions on who will win, we do have a presumptive Democratic frontrunner at this point in Joe Biden. And I'm curious, you know, uh, you know what, because uh, I haven't followed his specific transport plan, but what what have we seen that a potential Biden administration would look like when it, and, and also perhaps a fully Democratic Congress in terms of increasing that level of support further or where they would place their priorities on this? So, you know, if, uh, yeah, if the, if the virus is over by the fall, as many epidemiologists expect it will be, at least temporarily, uh, and, you know, perhaps Biden wins on election day, what would the the next four years look like in terms of a public transport perspective? Yeah. So, you know, um, I mean, I think you can see it just in, not to get too political, but you can see the level of support in between the House version of the bill and the Senate version of the bill, right? The mm -hmm. Senate version of the bill had $20 billion. The House version, which is controlled by, the Senate's controlled by Republicans. The House, controlled by Democrats, Nancy Pelosi's bill had $25 billion. So a 20% increase in what was initially proposed, or 25%. So I think that generally, that is the general perception, that Democrats uh, generally support more funding for public transit and support generally having um, uh, it be it be kind of a, a general service available to all, and maybe they'd be more supportive of having free fares for public transit as they uh, you know generally want to provide more services for free to the public. Republicans still, I think, are strong supporters. I mean, you saw it come out. They the, the first Senate bill included exactly what APTA asked for: sixteen billion dollars. We asked for it; sixteen billion dollars they gave us. So. Uh, I mean, my question is, what's going to happen with the elections? And is Joe Biden really going to be the nominee? Or there seems to be, you know, a groundswell of support for Governor Cuomo of New York to suddenly maybe march out of a uh, out of a brokered convention because he's shown, you know, what many people consider to be strong leadership during this crisis. So I think that uh, politics right now are upended um, and that uh, w things may not come out the way they look right now. Three months from now, we could have a different nominee of the Democratic Party. I'm not saying they will. I like Uncle Joe. He's from my neighboring state. and uh, But, um, you know, a great guy with a great career, I'm sure. But um, just not sure. Things are kind of up in the air. I heard today that the Democratic Party's thinking about not even having any more uh, debates, even though there was one scheduled. Uh, and, uh, 
so anyway, we'll see what happens. But I think that um, I think that there's going to be, like you said, a little whole new world when we come out of this. To me, I'm optimistic and thinking that the Republicans and the Democrats are all going to say, you know what, the wheels in the bus that go round and round are also the wheels that help turn our economy and make our society uh, function as a modern society. We cannot let that go derelict. We have to make sure that we continue to support it. I see actually even, you know, we were on a call this week with APTA, a couple calls, nationwide calls with the American Public Transit Association, and they're seeing even more support from both political parties for the stimul- a new stimulus package, uh, which would be infrastructure related, which could also pump more capital dollars into our agencies, which would help, like you said, our public private partners who are helping do a lot of these projects. So I see out of this event, more funding available from the federal government, which in my mind is required for us to have a great national public transit system. Well, the future is certainly not what it used to be. Thank you so much for joining us, Paul. Thanks, Greg. Wow. Paul Comfort really coming out with the fiery takes. Definitely an exciting episode of the podcast. Yeah. Well, like I would say November is going to be exciting no matter how you slice it. So, um, well, that's all the time we have for this week. Thank you so much for joining us, Jonah. And we will all be back soon with another episode of the Commotion Mobility Podcast. Take care.